this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is about ballot questions in Maine. Whose initiatives are they? We'll discuss what happened in the recent election, what our Constitution provides, and what role the legislature and the governor are playing now. We'll be taking your calls during the second half of the show, so stand by to join the conversation. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum, and let me introduce our guests. Joining us by phone today is John Brodigam. John is the attorney, former Maine state legislator and assistant attorney general, now serving on the board of the League of Women Voters of Maine. Welcome, John. Good morning, Ann. And joining us in the studio today, we have Ron Schmidt. Ron is Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Southern Maine. He's also the author of the forthcoming book, The Uncanny Friend, Reading Politics with Machiavelli, due out from Oxford Press sometime next year. Welcome, Ron. Thank you. Um, Louis Brandeis once said, the most important political office is that of a private citizen. Maine is one of about two dozen states that gives its citizens the opportunity to enact legislation directly by referendum. When citizens vote on ballot questions, they are acting as legislators themselves. And here in Maine, there has been a flurry of activity of this kind of direct democracy over the last few cycles. Maine citizens passed four new laws at the ballot box last November, but those new laws remain controversial in some aspects. So we're going to talk today about what is the history of the citizen initiative and people's veto in Maine, are there problems with the current process, what measures is the legislature considering to change or restrict the citizen initiative process, we'll explore these questions and more today. So Ron, let me put it to you first. What's the history of the citizen initiative provisions in our constitution and why do we have them at all? Maine first adopted this system back in 1908, and that was part of a national movement um, that was affiliated with the progressives, who were a movement within both of our major political parties, although there were more in the Republican Party than, than the Democratic. People nowadays throw around the phrase special interests. At the turn of the 20th century, the idea was that there were some interests, the railroads in the West, for example, that were so powerful and so wealthy that they could really control the outcome of any legislative agenda. They could just direct money directly to party leadership in in the legislature and stop any bill they disliked from, from being passed. And so state constitutional reform was pushed throughout the country to enable individual citizens to introduce pieces of legislation and have them acted on when the state legislatures would not do so. And we were part of that movement. Are there parallels to that last century analogy at work today, John, would you say? Yes, I would say so. And just to kind of continue what Ron started with, there was a a resurgence of um, interest in the citizen initiative in Maine in our lifetimes in the 1970s. And then I think again today, sort of mirroring that earlier populist progressive era um, effort that first brought the citizen initiative into existence in Maine. I, I see this continuing to happen into the future. Um, and, uh, you know, certainly there have been uh, discussions in the legislature about uh, whether the legislature should respond to this in some way, shape, or form. But since it is embedded in the Constitution, I think it's something that's here to stay for a long time. 
what modern factors in the recent past have, um, well, maybe I should ask first, what has been the recent history in Maine? How many of these initiatives have come forward in the last, let's say, 20 years? Well, I think we're averaging about five or six uh, election cycle. And um, just as background, these, uh, you know, can't get, it's not easy to get on the ballot. It requires 61,000 signatures currently to uh, get an issue approved and initiated through into the process. And then there's other steps that it takes before it gets actually out in front of the voters and the voters get to make their choice. So it is a, it is a difficult process, but I think there are a set of issues, a range of issues where for a variety of reasons, um, the public and people with an, a strong interest um, have been motivated um, to do that work, to roll up their sleeves, and in many cases to spend a considerable amount of money uh, to force the issue to the voters and kind of bypass the legislature. Has it been used equally or disparately between progressive and conservative interests? Go ahead. That's a great question. I don't know. Um, I haven't looked at that uh, at that data. I'm sorry. I mean, certainly there have been some tax reform initiatives that have been motivated more on the conservative side. John? Yeah, I think there have been um, efforts in both directions recently. I think it's a little bit hard to say. Um, if you add in the people's veto, um, I think you do sweep in um, some of the uh, uh, initiatives um, that are maybe perhaps a little bit more conservative in nature. And then, uh, you know, currently there are signatures being gathered to uh, it's technically not a people's veto, but it's a, a, a measure that would uh, roll back some of the human rights protections for gay and lesbians in, in Maine. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it is certainly a, an option that's available to anybody, and it has been availed. Uh, many different groups have availed themselves of this in the last 30 years. What are the arguments sort of for and against representative versus direct democracy as it relates to these kinds of things, Ron? When when Jefferson first read over the Constitution, apparently he was very concerned because he feared that the results of this would be to create a kind of professional class of political actors. That one of the the pleasant surprises for the revolutionaries was this discovery that active political work was a pleasure in and of itself, and that that would become a possession of his generation, but not of later ones. And in fact, he spent the later years of his life arguing that the Constitution should be amended to create a new layer between House members and the public at large, where the neighborhoods of the country would be broken up into groups of maybe 100, where people could debate issues and then make recommendations to to the House. That that fear that an overly representative but not enough participatory democratic system would undercut democratic resolve uh, and democratic commitment has really never gone away. It, it, it ebbs and flows at various times. But the, the kind of concerns the progressives responded to were part of that whole process, this fear that professional lobbyists and, and very well-funded interests would be able to work with, with professionals in governments and cut out citizen concerns altogether. Um, that being said, the, the, the idea of a, of a sort of mass democratic movement that the progressives responded to isn't exactly the way our, our political process works. Individual citizens can initiate political processes, but for that to work, you need to create coalitions. You need to create partnerships. You need interest groups really to, to move. And that means it's very difficult to weed out 
special interests or well-funded interests from the initiative process just like it is from regular legislative processes. Uh, to some degree or another, we're involved in the um, the compromises that are involved in any kind of interest group politicking, but also we have campaign finance issues, which which leave us with the fact that just because there is a way for citizens to act directly without going through legislatures, that doesn't weaken the power of, of corporate interests. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is an interesting conversation and reflecting back on the progressive origins of these initiative questions and the fact that some of the questions that came forward this year were well-financed. Yes. Um, but then on the other hand, John, I mean, maybe you can comment. I think almost all of the five questions that came forward this year were ones that had had a shot in the legislature and didn't get out, right? Well, formally, officially, they all have to have a shot in the legislature before they can make it onto the ballot. The legislature has to get a bite at the apple. Um, But oftentimes in recent years, that's been a very uh, pro forma and preemptory process, and the legislature hasn't really taken up the issue. Um, but in that, in the yes, you're you're right. All of these issues, even before the last couple of years, have been um, in front of the legislature in one shape, way, shape, or form um, in, in the last in the last five years. I mean, I like I, I like Ron's um, comment about Jefferson and his his notion that um, you know active work on democracy should be a, a pleasure for the people. I mean, I think when we look at the uh, role of initiatives in our in our process. I think it can it can be viewed in two different in two different ways. Um, there's the immediate effect of enacting a policy that has been uh, subject to impasse in the legislature, and for political reasons, you know, the public may support the policy, but the legislature just can't get it done. So there's that immediate benefit benefit of uh, benefit of going around that process. But there's also the larger uh, benefit of reminding the public who is in the driver's seat in our democracy. And it is a, a difficult, problematic um, process. It's not perfect. You might uh, borrow the adage that it's the worst system for making law except for all the others. Um, it is uh, something that is subject to manipulation by or influence of a large amount of money. But it does have the beneficial effect of reminding the citizens and voters of the state that they, um, if they want to uh, make a difference, they can make a difference directly and that they are the sovereigns in this system. And I think that's um, a useful benefit. So let's talk about the process a little bit. Like, where do the questions come from? How do they get written? How do they um, get on the ballot? Um, Let's just start from the beginning and talk about what's required to get one of these things going. Well, the questions, like any piece of legislation, can start anywhere. I, I can write a bill. You can write a bill. Um, so can – I mean there are lobbying firms that have file cases full of generic bills that can be adapted for various purposes. Um, but you have to apply to the Secretary of State in Maine. The Secretary of State has to ensure that the, the way your initiative is written doesn't directly contradict settled Maine law or doesn't contradict the Constitution. Um, it has to get a financial – impact uh, review, and then that review is attached to all copies of the legislation. All of that has to happen before you begin to try to collect the signatures you need to get it on the ballot. Um, we've got a formula here where uh, you have to get ten. The, the number of signatures you need reflects 10 percent of the total votes in the previous gubernatorial election. 
which is a lot of people. You know, it's 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 not as many in terms of raw numbers as states like New York or California, but it's a it's a it's a considerable percentage. So that's a big task. Um, but if you can make that happen, then you can get on the ballot, and the other voters can respond to it. John, want to add to that? Yeah, um, I I think that that's absolutely correct. And in fact, I would just point out that the number of signatures required to get on the ballot has been increased over time. I believe initially it was only eight percent of the uh, votes in the uh, most recent gubernatorial election. So it is a, it is a difficult process, um, but it is a citizen process. And Ron mentioned, you know, the the issue of a initiative which is a statute. Um, conflicting with the Constitution, which is not uh, subject to amendment by the initiative. And some really interesting issues come up in that in that context when that happens. But, you know, what, if somebody submits a, a proposed statute and the Secretary of State looks at it, and I guess probably the Attorney General's office looks at it too to make mm-hmm. sure that um, you haven't overlooked something that might be as Ron says, a conflict. I mean, that happens, right, John? Well, ultimately, it's up to the citizens to make the final decision on the wording of the legislation that goes to the public. And they will get the benefit of the technical review and the legal review that Ron described. But if the citizens want to push it forward, that is their right under mm-hmm. the Constitution. And in in some recent cases, there have been um, at least questions raised about the constitutionality or propriety or exactly how something would work of some of the citizen initiatives. Listeners, you're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU this morning. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is ballot questions in Maine. Whose initiatives are they? Our guests this morning are uh, Attorney John Brodigam, an election law expert, and Ron Schmidt, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Southern Maine. We've been talking about the citizen initiative process, how things get on the ballot, and then I think we're at the point to what happens after they pass or fail. You know, we've got, we had five questions on the ballot this year, not counting the bond questions. One failed, four pass, now what? Well, now we get to questions of implementation, and you can run into any number of issues there. Uh, the Secretary of State can ask for more time to figure out how the, the new law can be implemented or defined. Um, that there often is a requirement for appropriations, and that, of course, involves the legislative process. So it's not like this is a complete – this process is completely outside of the legislative sphere. Um, and, of course – Anytime you involve committee work in legislatures, you, that costs time and it can cost money too for the resources to, to argue for your definition. So it's, it, it's very, very rarely just like some sort of automatic implementation. You, you then begin the process of negotiating how this law will be implemented. Um, and sometimes you don't necessarily even get that far, which is currently the issue with um, what have been initiative number five. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, John. Well, and on well, to yeah, there are the whole the five the initiatives that are in front of the legislature and are, are being implemented right now. Really, could be a whole textbook of all kinds of different implementation issues, from from legal challenges to funding challenges to flat out political challenges. But there's a couple of points here that are worth making. There there has been a mantra in the legislature that you know when the citizens have spoken on an issue, the legislature keep should keep their hands off of it. Um, that has been um, honored less and less, I think, in recent years. Um, I think there's more and more of a willingness for the legislature to just simply say, well, the people in my district didn't support this, so I'm going to continue to fight it. 
so there's that there's that piece that is worth worth noting. The other thing I would mention is that the legislation um, that's enacted by Citizen Initiative has no more technical legal uh, priority than any other bill that the legislature might enact. So it is possible for the legislature to turn around and change, delay, repeal something. It's really just a question of the political will to do that. So all four of those that passed are in various stages of implementation and the political fight for those who won at the ballot is really not over. Certainly on the education funding and the minimum wage, those that political fight is still raging. Um, the legalization of marijuana, similar, uh, there, although there already has been a bill uh, enacted to delay that in part, parts of that measure. And then the ranked choice voting measure is um, before the Supreme Court for an advisory opinion on its constitutionality before further implementation is completed in the legislature. I want to talk a little bit more later in the program about the state of play that each of those questions is in. But before we leave the process topic, I want to ask um, about what the role of the governor is from the time these questions get qualified for the ballot through to the implementation phase that we're in. What role does the governor play? The governor has a lot of roles he can choose to play. He can choose uh, after any piece of legislation or referendum is passed to continue lobbying or working um, either against it or potentially for it, but via a very particular reading of it. You know, there may be some part of it that a governor wants to see implemented and another he's less enthusiastic about. He can reach out to the legislature to try to affect their votes on how these things will be funded. He can try to speak directly to the public um, or he can, as he's done on this occasion, ask for a a so-called solemn occasion uh, to ask the the court to to weigh in on the constitutionality of a referendum before it goes forward. John? Well, one thing that the governor can't do is veto the bill. Um, The governor can veto anything coming out of the legislature, and there's a two-thirds override requirement in the legislature. But the Constitution does um, limit the formal ability of the governor to uh, veto a bill, but Ron is absolutely right. There's a million different levers the governor can pull to um, redirect or delay or even thwart a citizen initiative. But the way our Constitution is written, if citizens get the qualified number of signatures and they're um, certified to be legally gathered signatures of qualified voters, I mean, there's nothing at that point that can stop that question from appearing on the ballot, right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, The only thing that can really stop it is if it is fully enacted by the legislature without any amendments or modifications, then it wouldn't need to go to the ballot. What are the other options the legislature has? So a question is presented to them and they can pass it outright, but is that that's not all they could do. They could put forward a competing measure, right? Sure. Yeah, they can always introduce a, a, a version of the legislation on their own. Um, they could try to argue for that version as opposed to a referendum. Um, they can't stop the process from going forward on a referendum, but they can um, either try to compete with it or, or flatly argue against it to the voters and try to, to, to sway popular opinion. Talk about the competing measures, John, and why they haven't really been used that much. Well, a competing measure is really seen as a challenge to the initiative in many ways. Um, 
there was there was an important competing measure struggle over forestry back uh, several years ago, um, where the uh, initiative uh, to restrict clear cutting was uh, gathered sufficient signatures, and the legislature enacted or uh, passed a competing measure that was a somewhat modified version of that, um, and uh, so that was. Um, viewed as a, uh, a challenge to the initiative. And then what happens is you have a three-way vote in the, in the fall uh, for the first initiative, for the competing measure, or for none of the above. And in order to win, the original question has to get how many votes? Well, the original question has to get a majority um, of the three choices in the fall under that scenario. So they would have to get 50% or more in a three-way that's right. Race, yeah. That is, that's a high hurdle. So how, how come, let's just take um, the minimum wage question as an example, talking about these competing measures, and now the argument seems to be around tipped wage workers. How come the legislature didn't, for example, put out a competing measure that would say, here's the original question, including tipped wa- wage workers, here's a competing measure, excluding tipped wage workers, voters, what do you think? How come that didn't happen? I've wondered the same thing myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's really just more of the same political impasse. Um, I, I do think that more and more, as I hinted, the the advocates of the initiative, um, they claim that issue. Once they submit their signatures, they claim that issue as theirs, and they exercise their political power to prevent anything else from happening in the legislature. And... Very often there's a sense uh, of legislators on either side that um, this is going to the voters anyways. Let's not burn up a huge amount of time and capital here in Augusta to um, futz over something related to this. Let's just let the voters have their say and then we'll work on it next time. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. The political scientist Richard Neustadt said once that although we talk about separation of powers in our government, we really should talk about separate branches sharing powers. And that leaves a lot of leeway for all the various players in the system to act even after laws or referenda are, are enacted. Right, The legislature controls most aspects of the budgeting um, and aspects of implementation. The executive branch executes the law, but that also involves financial choices um, and bureaucratic and organizational choices. And then, of course, the courts can become involved on the actions of those two. So it may seem like it's just it's just better to bow out of the – the part of the process the public pays very close attention to and try to exercise more influence once that part is over. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point, Ron. And, and I, I've written a number of initiatives that have been on a ballot in recent years. And my advice to the people who are advocating for these is in the case of something that requires funding is to make sure that the initiative includes a measure for funding it so that you can cite, you don't have that additional hurdle in the legislature after it's passed at by the voters. Yeah. It's really important to um, to do that to ensure the long-term success of the initiative. So before we leave this process topic, um, all four of those that passed are enacted law, right? They're on statute, in effect, um, the law of the land at this point. Is that true? Yeah, that's correct. The ranked choice voting measure was delayed for 30 days pursuant to the Constitution because it required spending. But that 30-day period has passed, and it is statutory law now. And and um, the citizen initiative process is distinct 
or at least slightly different from the people's veto process and slightly distinct from the bond referendum. So those are three kind of different ways questions can come before voters. What are the just nuances that differentiate those three? Well, again, to go back to the, the Newstat point about separate branches sharing powers, in the the institutional aspects of, of state and federal government, the the legislature, as the name suggests, writes the bill and the executive, as the name suggests, executes the bill. But one of the executive powers is this power of veto. You could think about this initiative process as allowing the public to enact powers of those two branches. So a, a citizen's initiative means that citizens are writing legislation and undergoing the process of trying to win passage of that legislation, whereas the people's veto coming after the fact is the the public trying to intervene on the executive side uh, and being able to uh, to refuse to sign off, as it were, on a, on a piece of legislation. Mm-hmm. You want to add to that, John? Well, um, I would only illustrate um, that with the... Um, case a few years ago with us uh, legislative action on voter registration that was subject to a people's veto where the where the people immediately after the session immediately after the adjournment of the legislature there is a period of time in which the the voters can gather signatures to veto much the way you would do with a citizen initiative except a much more compressed time frame and they succeeded in gathering the signatures putting that on the ballot and reversing what the legislature had done um, so it's a, it's a more immediate reaction to something that is regarded by some in the public as a failure of the legislature or an action of the legislature that disregards the public sentiment on an issue. There yeah, that's was a, great example. a people's veto on a tax package a couple of years ago, too, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. Well, let's t- turn for a minute then to a discussion of whether it's working. Um, you know, there has been a little bit of a hue and cry from the legislature that the process has run amok and people talk all the time about whether special interests and money is driving these questions. So let's uh, talk for a minute about the extent to which this whole thing is working. Um, and I'll give you each a moment to say sort of generally whether you think it's working or not, and then I'll ask you some questions. Go ahead, Ron. We, citizen initiative processes like these, <clears throat> as I said before, are based on compromise. And so they have – they all have strengths or weaknesses. I've lived in places, other states that have citizen initiative processes that are much more flawed than, than Maine's. Um, when I left California in the 90s, um, the initiative process was in, remarkably expensive and had become basically a whole other um, – aspect of professional legislative and political work, which had serious problems to it. I think relative to that, Maine's process works. There are, um, as I said, issues, but in, in some ways those have to do with, with how we conceive of citizen initiatives. If if your idea of a citizen's initiative is that this is the voice of the people without the interference of interest groups, then you're going to find it disappointing. But that's – I think that, that that definition of the initiative process is flawed. What's the alternative definition you would suggest? I'd say it's another venue of of American political activity, which is which is based on on interests, competing interests, competing visions of the public good, and compromise. Go ahead, John. What's your take on whether it's yeah? Working or I mean, not? very similar to what Ron just said. Um, you know, it's often said that we get the legislature we deserve. I think mm-hmm. we get the citizen initiative process that we deserve. It's no better, no worse than the public. It's no better and worse than we are willing to educate ourselves and engage with issues um, on a uh, on a direct, you know, sort of retail democracy level. Um, it is 
It doesn't work extremely well all the time. It has it is subject to influence, but so is the legislative process, and so is the administrative process. So it's it's really it, it re, it's an expression of our democracy, and as people are more and more engaged and more and more informed, it'll work better and better. I think. Mm-hmm. At this point, I'd like to invite our listeners to join our conversation. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther, the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this morning are John Brodigam, attorney and election law expert, and Ron Schmidt, associate professor of political science at USM. Um, Our topic today is ballot questions in Maine. Whose initiatives are they? If you have a question or comment, you can join our conversation by calling toll-free 866-625-9378 or 469-0500 if you're calling locally. We have only one listener line open today, so be patient if you get a busy signal. If you do get through, please take your answer off the line off the air so that others can uh, also get through and participate. And don't wait till the last minute to call. Get your call in early. So we're talking about whether the process is working, and we certainly heard an outcry from the legislature, many comments from sitting legislators that it's not working, these bills were terribly crafted, Um, oh, woe is us, this is really a mess. Um, Is there anything to that? John, go ahead. Well, um, I, I do think that there is um, something to that. Um, I, I do think that there is um, there are occasions and illustrations where an item can be placed on the ballot. I think maybe one of the most extreme examples of that right now is the um, initiative that's um, where the signatures have been submitted on on slot machines for a casino in York County. Um, this is something that's really primarily funded by one um, interest and is um, they succeeded in gathering the signatures. And I think a lot of the rest of the, the country is sort of scra- uh, sorry, rest of the state is sort of scratching their heads and not really sure about what the compelling drive is for that as a statewide ballot issue. Um, so I, I do think that there are some. Um, some flaws in the process or at least some opportunities for influence that are maybe not so democratic. Um, but again, uh, it's the best, you know, it's the worst system except for any others. I think that that's what we have to live with. Political scientists talk a lot about the, the law of unintended consequences. Um, one of my favorite examples I use in class is that in California at the turn of the 20th century, around the time that Maine adopted these provisions, the California state constitution was also amended. And some of their reforms were intended to weaken the power of political party leadership because it was said in those days the Southern Pacific Railroad could get whatever they wanted with just two trips up to Sacramento. And it was effective. The party power was weakened, but the result was an enormous empowerment of lobbyists. Um, There was a guy named Artie Samish who had a suite of rooms right across the street from the legislature, ran essentially like a hotel um, over there, and had enormous influence over the legislature and kept it for decades. His his downfall eventually was was affected just because his mother passed away, and while he was in mourning and drunk, he gave an interview to a journalist, invited him to his hotel room, and posed for a photo with a ventriloquist dummy on his lap that had a sign around its neck saying, Mr. Legislature. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so in in that kind of political universe, I would say that the unintended consequences of Maine's initiative process are, are pretty manageable. Uh, there are 
badly crafted initiatives or badly crafted laws, too. Um, I think this is one of those baby and bathwater situations. Um, we are taking listener calls at this point. If you have a question or comment, you can join our conversation by calling toll-free 866-625-9378 or locally 469-0500. We do have a caller on the line. It's Steve from Belfast. Go ahead, Steve. Hey, thanks for taking my call. I was just wondering if you could say what the most acceptable form of a citizen initiative would be and just how to understand in the future how we might craft as citizens that would be most likely to, to succeed. What do you think is success, Steve? Uh, having the majority of the public getting what we want as a, as a state. Great. Um, well, I, I, as someone who's written a few of these, I will give you a partial answer to that. It's the best of my, you know, my opinion, I guess. Um, I think a citizen initiative needs to have... Um, sufficient detail and sufficient sort of policy um, clarity uh, so that the, the people know what they're, they're voting on, um, but not uh, necessarily um, to completely micromanage every aspect of implementation. I think it needs to be a clear policy statement, but um, there's always going to need to be uh, some um, flexibility in the implementation of it. So the, the, the trick is to get it definite enough so that you get what you want without being so overly prescriptive that it doesn't work. I think that's exactly right. I mean, you, you know more about it than, than I do, but I think with, with the writing of law, like, like any good writing, you need to keep in mind different audiences, right? You need to find a way to explain what you're doing exactly to, to all of those audiences. So explain to voters what this is really about and also offer those who are going to have to execute and implement the law later um, enough of what they want to do and enough leeway to do their jobs that you get support across the board. What? Go ahead, John. The point I would make is that there is quite a time lag between the, the day that um, you know, a group of, of, of activist citizens get together and draft something, and it goes all the way through the process of them you know, working to build a coalition or whatever, um, developing support for it, and then gathering the signatures could take a year, and then going through the—it could be two or more years between the time something is drafted and the time it actually takes effect easily. Um, and things can happen during that time period that can make things more complicated. And then, of course, as you pointed out, it passes and your work is just beginning. So success depends in many cases on being there for the long haul, I think is what you're suggesting. Yes, exactly. So speaking of in it for the long haul, what's the role of money? Like, do you need a lot of money to put one of these things over? You always need money. Um, (laughs) And I mean, the, one of the issues that we have with campaign finance in general at the federal level and at the state level is that money is so crucial to our political process that in, the, in 1977, the Supreme Court said that, that campaign money is itself a kind of political speech. You can regulate speech um, in, in a variety of ways, but it's hard. And that ruling was called Buckley versus Vallejo makes it a lot more difficult for states and the federal government to regulate the power of, of campaign money. So, so yes, it's, it's always expensive to engage in broad-based politics, and that does empower those who either have a lot of money or who have access to those who do. And in the context of an initiative where you're advocating for an issue and not a particular politician or candidate, um, there's 
the courts have said there's very little um, that the states can do to restrict the spending on, on an initiative um, because there is no real risk of corruption the way they might be in the case of contributing to a candidate campaign. Interestingly, in this, le- in this session of the legislature, there actually is a bill taking shape that might, I would consider the concept of public funding for citizen initiatives. Oh. And um, I'm, I'm sort of interested in reading that and kind of withholding judgment until I see it. But it does express the view that, you know, maybe there's, there's too much special interest money in the process. This is uh, Ann Luther. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU right now. We're talking about ballot questions in Maine. Whose initiatives are they with our guests, John Brodigam, an attorney and election law expert, and Ron Schmidt, associate professor of political science at USM. We're taking your calls at this time, so if you'd like to join our conversation, please call toll-free 866-625-9378 or 469-0500 if you're calling locally. Talking about money and its role in the process, I mean, do we have, what's the fate of these questions depending on whether they're well-funded or not well-funded? You know, there have been some recent examples where a very well-funded interest group came in and promoted a question, and sometimes they win and sometimes they lose, and then there have been other examples where these questions get on the ballot almost entirely through volunteer efforts. I mean, what's the mix there and what examples do we have that uh, prove the rule or I'm not even sure what I'm asking, but how, how does money, you know, affect the outcome, whether you can really, does it make you more successful or not, I guess is what I'm asking. No, that's a good question. I mean, money is a, is a very important part of our process, maybe too important a part of our process, but it's not a straightforward guarantee of success. I mean, I was one of those who two years ago, was thinking that about now I would be talking about the influence of the Koch brothers over whoever the Republican nominee had been. And whatever else we can say about the the president, he didn't come out of that particular that particular set of issues. So um, money is not a guarantee of, of success and a lack of it isn't a guarantee of it either. You do need resources and, and initiatives that aren't very well funded do require an enormous amount of energy and time, um, which can be very difficult to manage without – uh, without being able to recompense people for their time directly. Um, also, even if there's a lot of money in the process, the money has to be well spent. And that can that requires a certain amount of knowledge of local voters. You know, I think we're seeing some national issues appearing on Maine's uh, political agenda. We're seeing national interest groups, therefore, pouring money into Maine, even state legislative elections and initiative elections. But that isn't that doesn't guarantee success at all unless you have a kind of a knowledge of Maine voters and what, what trends Maine voters respond to. I think in all of the initiatives that were on the ballot just in this last year, um, almost all of them, there was a substantial amount of money on at least one side, if not both sides. And some of that money came um, in large chunks from folks who uh, may not necessarily be full-time Maine residents, shall we say. Um, so I think that the public discourse about the initiatives, I think it's healthy for that discourse to include a discussion of where is the funding coming from and um, what are the interests of the people who are promoting this and the nature of their fundraising. And I think that's fair game, and I think that's a healthy thing to be talking about and for the public to understand as they're going into the voting booth. I think you're exactly right, yeah. Well, and some of the best-funded initiatives, I mean, I think the one that raised the most money in 2016 failed. 
at the ballot box, right? Yeah, the background checks. Right. I don't. I, I haven't confirmed that that has the, have raised the most, but it certainly raised quite a bit. So it's not a, an outright guarantee of success if you have a lot of money. No, certainly, especially in an election year when um, a national election year when the when the airwaves are completely saturated and um, there's only so much you you can do that to persuade the voters with you know massive purchase of television time. And that's that's what you know, once you get over a million dollars in a campaign like this, the, most of it goes into buying media. So can citizens be act, be counted on to act as legislators? And I mean, we're talking about the money a certain to a certain extent, citizens being able to cast an informed vote on these questions depends on putting out a lot of information about both sides of the question, yes or no, so that people really are very well informed. And of course, that does take a little bit of money. But can citizens really be depended upon to do as good a job determining the outcome of these questions as a legislative body would do? Well, it's a different kind of responsibility and a different kind of of set of skills. Voters are used to picking other people to do that kind of work for them. and that voting pattern also exists inside the the um, the arena of voting for initiatives. I lived in New Jersey for a while, and the balloting place I went to, you had an option of voting individually on a broad array of issues and offices, or you could vote for one party or the other, and it would vote you the full party slate all the way up and down. And I mean, that kind of partisan organization can people, especially in Maine, I think, look askance at it. But the parties do have a logic to them. I mean, parties are are big, big coalitions of a lot of interest groups that have certain issue overlaps that, that make sense. And so I would say that, yeah, we, we assume that the voters are capable of judging for themselves on on legislative issues, just like we assume they're capable of, of judging for themselves on legislators. But that may not look like what progressive reformers had in mind. That may not take the form of, of voters doing a great deal of homework, mm-hmm. but instead having a sense of where their alliances are um, and trying to vote in keeping with those. And where their people are voting, yeah. Yeah. John? I, I guess I see, I see there's kind of a spectrum of issues that could go out to the public. And on either end of that spectrum, I would be uncomfortable. I mean, on the one end, you know, I, I don't know that I would want the public voting on, you know, whether or not a disenfranchised or minority group has certain human rights. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say, you know, at that end, you know, we, I, I don't know that that's the kind of thing I would want to see a popular referendum on. Um, on the other hand, you know, sort of uh, an issue about like the minutia of administering fiscal matters in the state. Also, I don't think that's the kind of thing that the public really has a has a great great grasp on and really strong interest in. So I think there's a sweet spot in the middle, and particularly particularly important where the issues relate to something about the function of the elected representatives and how they are chosen, where it's particularly important that the public may weigh in, since the legislators themselves may have an interest that may not um, allow them to really express the will of the voters directly. So that's that's kind of how I see the spectrum. Give some examples of that last category, John, to illustrate for our listeners. Well, I think an example would be um, on, on, you know, an issue that I've worked on quite a bit with you, Ann, and with others is campaign finance and regulation and reporting um, and the public funding of elections. Um, this is an area where the legislators 
even legislators who supported public funding of elections in concept may have felt uncomfortable voting for it because it may have been perceived to be feathering their own nest. So that's an issue where the public seized the initiative in 1996 and again in 2015 and spoke on how they wanted these these elections to be funded and um, passed uh, initiatives and then strengthened that initiative at the ballot box. Mm-hmm. So that's an example. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about some of the things now that the legislator the legislature is considering to um, curb the initiative process or to put some new constraints on it. I mean, before I ask you those questions, let me just take one more station break and remind our listeners that we're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. I'm Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. We're talking this morning about the the ballot questions in Maine, whose initiatives are they? And our guests this morning are John Browdigam, uh, attorney and election law expert, and Ron Schmidt, associate professor of political science at USM. We're in a listener call-in period. We welcome your calls or comments right now. You can join the conversation by calling 866-625-9378 or 469-0500. We're just turning to the question of the proposals, and there are a slew of them before the legislature this year to amend the Constitution to put new limits or constraints on the initiative process. And so let's talk about whether limiting the ballot question process has been tried before in Maine, how it worked out, and what uh, new constraints are being proposed this year? Well, there was, I did mention that the number of signatures required has been increased that make it a little bit more difficult. Um, that is still in, in the state law. Um, <clears throat> one of the changes to the, the state law was to prohibit petition circulators from being paid uh, on a per signature basis. Um, that was enacted by the legislature, but then um, advocates for the initiative process took the, took that uh, law to federal court, and it was struck down as a violation of the First Amendment. Um, I'll interrupt your answer, Ron, because we do have a caller, Ken from Gooseboro. You're on the line. Yeah, hi. Uh, slightly off your main focus, but a general question about funding. Um, I'm curious. Do we know where all those millions and millions of dollars went in a general way in the current election? And secondly, uh, are there any efforts or is there any hope that the cost could come down for uh, running for office? Well, running for office and ballot questions are a couple of different um aspects to this, but let's talk about where the money went on the ballot questions and whether there's any hope for the cost of running a ballot question to come down. Who would like to take that? I can speak to it sort of broadly. Um, thank you, Ken, first of all, for the for the questions. Uh, I think that the money spent and money uh, collected in campaigns does have to be registered. Um, and so there is an, uh, an element of transparency that that's very important in figuring out where the money comes from and where it goes. It takes a while. So often we don't know all the details by Election Day. And also it is legal under certain sections of the tax code for groups that don't list their donors um, to collect campaign money and then issue it. So in other words, even with that transparency, you might know that a group called Americans for uh, Efficient Representation – um, donated a ton of money to one or another question, but you won't be able to find out where they get their money. 
um, Maine is actually working on that issue and and trying to gain the power to look more into the the source of those donations, but we're not there yet. And the expenditures are also required to be disclosed, right? Yes. Do you want to add, John? Yeah, we do have a good, a pretty good system of disclosure in Maine for both citizen initiatives, issue issue campaigns, and candidate campaigns. And the Ethics Commission does a good job of posting the information online. So I'm pretty pleased with the degree of transparency we do have there. We could know how the money was spent, um, maybe not immediately, but eventually. I would say, too, I've lived, like I said, in a bunch of different places. And our ethics committee is, is very impressive. They, they work quickly and very responsibly and professionally. Any thought that the cost of running these campaigns would or should come down? Or is it what it is? Well, um, it, uh, I don't know that you um, – there's a, there's a trade-off between how complicated an issue is and how much work there is to educate the, the public and, and persuade the public. Um, you know, that does take resources to do that. Um, an issue where the public is on fire about something emotionally, you know, you may not need to do a whole lot of fundraising to, to get that issue onto the ballot and to promote it. So it kind of depends on the level of public engagement with the issue. But, you know, there is a certain minimum amount of money that needs to be done, or at least almost every campaign does raise a min- at least a minimum amount of money. So let's turn back to the question of limits. I mean, is the legislature on um, good policy grounds here trying to make it harder to qualify, or is, are we in a sweet spot in terms of how hard it is to qualify? John said that um, eliminating paid signature gatherers when they're paid per signature is probably not going to be constitutional, but some of the other requirements are geographic dispersal of the signatures by large and small districts and some other proposals. What do you think? Uh, Well, there's a bill in the legislature to require at least 10% of the signatures to come from each county, which gives me a little bit of a a headache because since we have 16 counties, I don't know how that (laughs) exactly works. But that's the kind of measure that um, I think would really put the brakes on the initiative process because any one geographic part of the state um, would have the ability to really slow down a process like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, I, you know, that's kind of depends on your theory of democracy and how easy it should be to do this and how much we're all in this together. I think, I mean, speaking a little bit more broadly, but I, I'm very sympathetic to the to the argument of legislators and especially of the legislative staff who do the research and the the writing work on a lot of legislation that there is a, a problematic aspect to citizen initiatives. You know, they can be overly simple. They can boil down a really complex debate in a way that's not particularly helpful. Um, however, this has been part of the way that Maine legislation has worked for over a century. And I don't see us having achieved a, a crisis point right now. I think that it's a system that has some flaws, but I think it, it works. And I don't see the, the contemporary compelling need to, to, to dismantle it or, and this is a perfect example, to, to slow it down to the point where you can more or less gut its effectiveness without actually getting rid of it. Would some of these requirements have the per- perverse effect of actually requiring more money and further professionalizing the process? I would think so. I mean, if, if you had to, to guarantee um, 10% of the voters in each county in the state, for example, that's going to require a lot of a lot of legwork. Um, and some of that may come from passion. 
but a lot of it's going to rely on on a certain set of skills that, generally speaking, we expect to be paid for. John? Yes, I, I agree. I think that that would um, make it, um, you know, just raise the bar. And another point here is if there's a limited time frame in which you can gather the signatures and, and therefore you cannot let this drag on for several years, you really have to get it done. And that really means like one cycle of, you know, one summer, one winter, one election in the fall, perhaps, where you can gather signatures. So that really does put the pressure on. And I think most people would turn to paid signature gatherers uh, in order to ensure that all their work was not was wasn't for naught. Yep. Well, we're um, coming into the last few minutes of our program today. So I want to give you each a chance to make a wrap up statement. But before we get to that, can we just go very, very quickly through the four questions that survived? Question one was marijuana. Question two was the education funding. Question four was the minimum wage. And question five was ranked choice voting. And can um, you just very quickly summarize the state of play on those four questions in the legislature right now? John? Uh, yeah, to the to the best of my understanding, the, the marijuana one has gotten a lot of attention and um, the issue of preventing um, people under the age of 21, that needing to be clarified has been taken up by the legislature. And then there was a, a delay, as I understand it, a delay put on the implementation of some aspects of that law. So I think there's more work that the legislature is going to do on it, but I think that's the current state of play. Um, the public education fund is uh, where additional uh, tax was, is levied on incomes above $200,000 to fund public K-12 uh, education. And this is um, in the shadow of the previous initiative to provide 55% state funding for education. And it is a powerful political statement that um, you know the voters did get behind this, although it didn't pass by a huge margin. Um, but it is a statement of support for the concept and that's now um, uh, being addressed in the Taxation Committee and in the Education Committee in the legislature. Um, the, the minimum wage uh, bill is also, um, you know, it's, it's on the books now, um, increasing up to a dollar, um, up to $12 in 2020. Um, and, but there are uh, bills in the legislature to adjust that and to, to uh, deal with the uh, issue of tipped wages in a different way. And I, I think we haven't heard the last of that one. And then ranked choice voting, um, as I mentioned, the, the uh, uh, Senate has asked the state Supreme Court for an advisory opinion on some constitutional issues there. And in the meantime, um, work is underway to implement that law because it needs to be in place for 2018. And um, parts of that law uh, are not subject to that Supreme Court opinion, so that that implementation really needs to move forward, regardless of what the court says. So that's what I see on the current state of play. Okay, so we're now we're down to like the last two minutes, and I do want to give you each, you know, one time one shot to wrap up and give citizens um, the last piece of advice about how they can stay involved in this process and follow it in the legislature. So go ahead, Ron. Well, first of all, I'd say that at this particular moment when there's a great deal of rage and cynicism directed at the at our political process, 
the ability of citizens' initiatives to really engage the public and make people feel that there is one more venue in which their voices can be effective is very important, even beyond the actual elements of the legislation being considered. And secondly, I'd say that voters can stay apprised of these situations the way they can with anything, to, to keep an eye on them as they work their way through the process, to, to pay attention to what's happening in media, and to never feel like they are insignificant, to reach out and support the, the legislation they want to see pass. Thanks, Ron. What about you, John? Last- I think I would just say that democracy is a great opportunity and it's a great responsibility. And the citizen initiative process is just one piece of how people need to engage in their democracy. We um, you know, need to pay attention to what our lawmakers and our elected officials and our administrators, our, our courts, everybody is doing and, and be vigilant. Um, we need to um, vote for the people that we you know, believe re- best represent us. And we can engage directly with this process. I think they are, all of those different tools have a role to play and, and helping us through what is, as Ron said, kind of a difficult um, uh, stretch in our democracy that we're going through right now. So before we wrap up this topic, then, I want to mention to our listeners that the League of Women Voters is sponsoring an in-person conversation on this topic on Wednesday February 22nd at Pat's Pizza, beginning at 5.30 p.m. Our guest that evening will be former Senator Jill Goldthwaite, um, current State Senator Brian Langley, Langley, and current State Representative Louis Lucchini. And uh, that will be Pat's Pizza in Ellsworth. Thank you for reminding me. And um, uh, we're looking forward to a good conversation there where we can talk in a lot more depth about what's happening in the legislature with the four questions that are before the legislature right now. So with that, I think we are pretty much out of time. Thank you to our guests this morning, John Brodigam, attorney and election law expert, and Ron Schmidt, associate professor of political science at USM. Thank you. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Thank you to John Greenman, our engineer at WERU. Thank you to our listeners. Our website is lwvme.org for more information about this topic or to learn about other shows in this series. Uh, See you here next month when our topic will be the two mains, Can We Bridge the Divide? Thanks a lot. Good morning. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Waterfront Concerts, presenting Jack Johnson with guest Bahamas at Darling's Waterfront Pavilion in Bangor on Wednesday, June 7th. Tickets on sale Friday, February 17th. Information online at waterfrontconcerts.com or 358-9327. Have you ever visited a salt marsh? These wetlands provide valuable habitat for birds and fish and help protect coastal property from flooding and storm damage. But they're vulnerable to rising sea levels and other climate-related changes, prompting action by local conservation organizations and scientists. This is Natalie Springle from the University of Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations. On our next program, my co-host Catherine Schmidt We'll visit a salt marsh with Maine Coast Heritage Trust, explore the perceptions of salt marshes through history, and talk with University of Maine researchers to discuss the status and importance of marshes and the birds that call them home. As always, your insights, experience, and questions are welcome as part of the conversation. So tune in Friday, February 24th at 10 a.m. when this month's Coastal Conversation is about Maine's salt marshes. Only on WERU Community Radio, 89.9 FM in Blue Hill, and 99.9 in Bangor, and all over.